0: Practice at our church is to just sequentially go through a book of the Bible and go through it section by section or verse by verse. And we are going through the book of Romans, the glorious, great, magisterial, complicated, amazing letter of Romans. And we are in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 today. But I'm going to lead us in there before I read our text. We saw last week. Uh, that Paul brings together his argument from Romans chapter 1, 18 through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And we saw in Romans 3, 1 to 20, that he brings together this summary defense, this final appeal from the people that didn't want to believe the gospel of justification by faith. That, you know, Paul teaches that the righteousness is in Christ through faith, and then people reject that. They want some other way of getting there either through obedience to the law or through some external means like circumcision, being belonging of the people of Israel. But Paul dismisses those appeals and shows that they don't hold, they don't stand. He gives his concluding case about our state before God. I encourage you to read Romans 3, 9 through 18 on your own. And it is a damning conclusion. Jew and Gentile, all under the power of sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. And he searches the human soul like a spiritual doctor and looks at the human spirituality and assesses our mind to see if there's any goodness in our mind, but actually ultimately No, there's no goodness there. Our tongue, our mouth, what we say, is there any goodness, righteousness there? No, our heart, our feet, every part of our life, once you compare it to God's holy standard, we fall short. And then Paul, in verse 19 to 20, gave the final verdict of the court, like as if this was a great prosecution case. And the verdict of the court was rendered guilty. Every human who's ever existed in all places, in all time, everywhere. Guilty in the sight of God. And Paul's intended effect of this entire section is summarized in 19 that we would be silent. That every mouth would be stopped. There'd be no, oh, but what about this? I've been this type of person. I've been involved in this type of way. I'm a sincere, genuinely moralistic person. The point of this whole section is that every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would be silent. And that as a result, we would quake before this holy God so that, he's not just trying to be negative, so that we would do the one thing that can actually save our souls. He wants us to be silent. He wants us to quake so that we will come before the mercy seat. We will come before the throne. We'll come before the judge, if you go back to that court analogy, and plead for mercy. That's the reason why Paul has been so negative for so long, so that every part of us has been removed. There's no way we can think we can approach God on our own terms. If you imagine salvation as climbing a ladder into heaven, what Paul has been doing is he lopped off one leg of the ladder and then tipped it over while you're on it. Or if you imagine the gap between you and God as a great, you know, there's a cliff on one side, a cliff on another, a great chasm in beneath. And we think there's a rope bridge and we can walk along this rope bridge. And what Paul has been doing in Romans 3 and all the chapters before is he's been with a saw chopping off the ropes at either end so that we fall into this bottomless chasm, never to make it to the safety of the other side. And as we fall, there ought to be this sense of terror, this sense of, I don't make it. I can't get there. I'm falling. What am I going to do? How am I going to be saved? I need help. Perhaps you know this feeling. Perhaps you're here today and you're stricken by sin and you know you need help. You need to feel each one of us at some point in our life that gut wrench as we fall so that verse 21 will actually make sense to us. The reason we are meant to feel this free fall and this condemnation is so that verse 21, when we get there, will be the best words, the most shocking, the most amazing truths in all the Scripture. Verse 21 and following, I should add. So let us turn to our text for this week. Last week we did 20 verses. This week, just one. But for context, I'm going to read Romans chapter 3, 19 to 22. Now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Let us pray. Almighty God and heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless the preaching and the reading of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Of these verses, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, said this, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than just these two words, but now. There are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture if you understand where we've been going, if you understand you're in the free fall, if you understand you're tipped off the ladder, no way to safety, no way to heaven, no way outside of God's wrath, than these words, just to, but, now. We're gonna spend our morning finding out just why that is the case. I have two points for us this morning. Point one, but now. Point two, although. Got really creative this week. And the hope is, is that by the end, we'll understand what the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying as to why these two words are so amazing. So let's look at point number one. But now, let me read the verse again so it's simmering and marinating. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, verse 21 marked a turning point, a radical shift in Paul's argument. He now finally turns the corner and gets back to where he began in 1, 16, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Let Let me take you back there so we can remind ourselves where we came from. Romans 1, 15, he said to this church that's already Christian, they already believe in Jesus. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He loves preaching the gospel. Why? Verse 16 for i am not ashamed of the gospel why for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek for in it that is in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith that's his summary argument for the whole letter but then in 118 he began that dark Turn downwards. Why is this such good news? Why do we need to know it? Well, because, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And from there, he gives that long argument and then picks it back up again in verse 21. So you see how those words all come together together. The righteousness of God is being revealed from faith through faith. The wrath of God is being revealed against uh, man's unrighteousness. But now the righteousness of God is being manifested apart from the law. He's picked up back on the argument. After the ladder has been kicked over, after the rope has been cut, after all of us have been charged, condemned, now he wants to get to the good news. The righteousness of God. That is the righteousness that God gives to people has been manifested. That's a weird way of saying has been revealed, has been displayed. It has come. Notice the perfect tense there. It has come and it remains. What he's introducing in verse 21 is an era shift. The old era of wrath and condemnation has turned a corner and there is a new era, the era and chapter of righteousness. That there is a way to be actually righteous in God's sight if you want it, apart from... Your own works, apart from climbing the ladder, apart from doing, 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 working, 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 obeying, 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 there's a way, there's a new way, there's a way to be righteous in God's sight. How? How is it possible? Well, that's verse 22. We know it, but it's so good to remind ourselves again. The righteousness of God through faith In Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God has been manifested through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anyone who believes in him, this verse tells us, they are counted righteous in the sight of God. Which now, after studying from chapter 118 to 320, ought to floor us, to know, if you know how wicked you are, if you know the law of God, if you know his righteous standard, if you know all that he is in his holiness and perfection, that now... You can achieve all of that, not through having to attain it, not through having to do it, not through having to live up to the standard or the code, but now a whole new era, faith in Christ delivers all of that righteousness to you instantly and permanently. Never to be lost, never to be removed, never to be stained, no matter what you have done or what you've become, if you are in Christ, the very righteousness of God in that courtroom has been put on your record forever. Now he's going to explain how that's possible in the verses to come, but we won't get there till next year. But I just want to present this as pure gospel fact for you this morning. You don't actually have to understand how it takes place. You don't have to understand the mechanics of it. There's great, beautiful, amazing theology that will enrich your soul. But what you actually need to know is that this is fact. This is God's ruling. This is the courtroom saying, You trust in my son, you are righteous. It's done never to be overturned, never to be appealed, no matter what Satan brings against you, no matter what accusation could come, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, this verse is forever and permanent for you. How wonderful is this reality? The righteousness of God is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there is no distinction. It's not just for the Jews and the Gentiles don't get it. It's not just for the Gentiles and the Jews miss out. It's for all. It's for all. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? Have you actually put all of your faith and only your faith in Jesus Christ? If you answer yes, then this is a happy, happy verse. This is true. On your best days, on your worst days, you're in Christ. And you, just, like, you just take this home. You're good. You're good to go. You're, just, you're dismissed. You're righteous in God's sight. Nothing, like nothing on earth that ever happens to you between that moment of first faith until final breath will affect your eternal standing. We think life is long. We think our stories and our life matters, but re- like life is so short. Our story is you know, meaningful in God, but realistically we will all be forgotten in 100 years' time. Do you know your great-grandparents' names? Do you even know where they lived? Do you know anything about their story or their life? That'll be you in 100 years. But in a billion years, you'll be in heaven forever in God's presence and not just like in the corner of heaven where like the people who just barely scraped in got there no no you will be in the very presence of God just as righteous as his very son with no shame with no reason to hide with nothing to feel embarrassed about because you'll be resplendent and gloriously clothed in his very righteous garment. That's what's on offer in this verse. That's why Mr. Lloyd-Jones said, but now are the most wondrous verses. So Paul has launched this turning point, and it's glorious, is it not? But I don't want us to press on too quickly because this verse has more for us. Paul has been carefully constructing each part of his argument and there's a crucial element still in this but now section this first point I want us to understand so that we rightly understand this gospel that I've been preaching look at verse 21 again but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law it's very crucial Because of our human nature, that we make this distinction between law and gospel. This is of vital importance for our life, for our joy, for our godliness, and our eternal security. Blending, mixing, or confusing the two elements of law and gospel is a stumbling block that Paul desperately wants us to avoid. You see, Romans 1, 18 to 320 is all law and no gospel. There's no gospel in there. It's all what you must do, what you must do, how far you have fallen short, the way you haven't completed what God has. It's all command. It's all demand. It's all about what you must do rather than what has been done. It's all about the demands of God, not his deliverance. It revealed our sin, but did not remedy it. It convicted us as guilty, but did not remove the guilt. So Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is all law and no gospel. And Paul uses the law in that context, these commands and demands, as we've seen, the first use of the law is it's like a mirror so that we see our sin, we see our need for Christ. And the perennial trap of all humans and even of Christians is to begin to confuse the law and the gospel so that we start to blend them to be one and the same. And we start to think that we're saved through Christ and we've got to do all these things as well. Or that we're saved through Christ plus our attendance at church or our connection or our baptism or our gifting or our innocentness. And we we start to bring in and we're like, well, I'm saved because I've done these things too. And we start to confuse law and gospel. So how do we help to not make the distinction so that we realize that the righteousness of God really has been manifested apart from law. It's manifested completely outside of what we're called to do. It's all done by Jesus Christ. It's a complete, he's a complete package and we receive him. We don't earn him. We don't do anything to get there. We just receive the package. Martin Luther in the Reformation time spent most of his life trying to carefully distinguish between law and gospel because The innate human tendency is to focus on commands and demands and then live our life in response to those commands and demands and always feel guilty, always feel condemned, always not understand and then live with this sense of like, oh, I just don't measure up. And so he talks about, when he uses the word law, he means any command in Scripture, any demand, any work we're called to do in both Old and New Testament. By gospel, he means God's works for us, God's promises to bless us. Anything that God does for us outside of our works, that's that's gospel. It's just good news given to you by God. He's the one that gives it to you. And the reason we need to make that distinction is so that we don't blur them together thinking that God's gospel is conditioned upon our obedience. It's not. It's, It's a package that comes irrespective of who we are through faith in Christ. He, commenting on John 7.37, to kind of give you a picture of how to make this distinction. Um, John 7.37, Christ says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Martin Luther says, These are the two subjects on which we preach. The law produces thirst. It leads the hearer to hell and slays him. The gospel, however, refreshes him and leads him to heaven. The law tells us what we are to do and charges us with not having done it no matter how holy we are. Thus the law makes me uncertain. It chases me about and thus makes me thirsty. The law says, thou shalt not sin. Go ahead and be godly. Do this and do that. But Christ says, thou art not godly, but I have been godly in thy place. Take from me what I give thee. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Come, I will not let you die of thirst. I will give you to drink. It's a wonderful way of viewing the world that the gospel is all receiving. It's all gift. It's all done, and the law is do 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 do. John one seventeen. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now it's not that the law is bad and doesn't have a place in the Christian life. It certainly does. The law is good. Romans seven seven tells us. And if we could keep the law, we'd be happy and safe and we'd be blessed forever and eternally. But remember Romans 3.20. No one is justified in God's sight by the law. The law reveals our sin. The law diagnoses our problem. The law teaches us what, how far we've fallen short so that we're now ready to receive the full gospel. See, we use the law. Paul is using the law in Romans 1 to 3 to help us to forever and always only trust in Jesus Christ for our full salvation and not to mix in any of ourselves, any of our works, any of our tradition, any of our history. To cause us to run to Jesus. Now, I want to... I'm focusing on this because the human condition is such that our natural instinct is law, command, demand, obedience. If you're new and Christianity is new to you, your instinct will be Christianity is a religion. I've got to do certain things so that I can get right with God. And Even after you become a Christian, the default mode of the human heart is, yes, I know I'm saved by Jesus, but really I know I've got to do these things so I can stay right with God. The gospel is, you're in Jesus, you're right with God. And the way this applies for us as Christians is actually changes the way in which we view pretty much everything about our life. And it changes our whole pursuit of holiness, even, and our pursuit of growing in our faith. Our instinct is that we will believe the gospel is there for our salvation, but not there to help us grow in our sanctification. So we look to the gospel to forgive us of our sins, and we think, thank you, Christ, for forgiving our sins. Now, okay, the law, how am I going to grow in my life? And then we look at all the laws, and then we just feel terrible. And we're like, oh, I'm so bad at this. I'm so, I don't do this, and I've fallen short here again. And so we start to fall back into the law paradigm, and we're living in the law rather than in the gospel. Martin Luther says, In affliction, you will realize that the gospel is a rare guest in men's consciences, while the law is their daily and familiar companion. This is why, likely, you feel so guilty right now, even now as a Christian. This is why you feel disheartened. This is why you often despair of making it to heaven. This is why you're ashamed to come to church. This is why you don't lead your own family with zeal. This is why you give in to any and all sin because you are focused on the law which brings death rather than and you've lost sight of Christ and the gospel. The law makes you thirsty but gives you nothing to drink. And instead of going to Christ, we think, I need more law. I need more rules. I need better quiet times. I need to wake up early. I need to give more, serve more, be more righteous, be more holy, stop doing this, put it all off. I just got to do it. But the solution is not law to change us. The solution is actually more and more and more gospel. Dane Ortland, in his excellent book, Deeper, says this growth in godliness is not generated by conformity to any external code whether the 10 commandments or the commands of jesus or self-imposed rules of your own conscience it's a bit of a wonder what you think of that now this does not mean and there's a typo here but this does not mean the commands of scripture are worthless on the contrary they are holy and righteous and good But the commands of the Bible are the steering wheel, not the engine to your growth. They are vitally instructive, but they do not themselves give you the power you need to obey the instructions. So we use the law to know what God loves, to know how God wants us to live. But then the actual engine that makes us live like that is not by focusing on the law, it's by taking another 10 looks at Jesus Christ. It's seeing Him upon the cross. It's seeing Him in His full righteousness. It's seeing that He welcomes us like the prodigal father welcomes the lost son. It's knowing that you're righteous in Him, loved in Him, empowered by Him, that He He looks upon you with favor. And when you fill your heart with Him, then you wanna do the law, you wanna change, you wanna live a different life. But if you spend your whole life looking at the law, you'll be thirsty. If you spend your life looking at Christ, you'll be satisfied and it will change everything. And so Paul wants them to see that there's a righteousness given to them apart from law, apart from do, it's all done. And then he'll go on in the rest of Romans to teach us that the way to change in the Christian life is not to go back to law, but to stay in the gospel and look upon Christ and look upon Christ and look upon Christ because he is our righteousness. Dane Ortland says, you can't crowbar your way into change. You can only be Melted. You can't crowbar your way into change. You can for a time, right? You know it. Get up, set habits, and all those things are helpful. But ultimately, unless you melt your heart with the loveliness of Christ and his assurance of forgiveness that he offers, that he actually just likes you, that he chose you before you began, uh, the world began, that he's on your team and you're on his, and it's a sweet fellowship, unless you're melted by the love of Christ... You'll just be thirsty and condemned by the law. You need the hot gospel of Romans 3.21 to melt your soul so that you want to live a new life for Christ. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones said the but now is such good news because it frees you from all the command and demand and the condemnation and the guilt that leads you away from Christ and instead it leads you to him, which actually changes Everything. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But there is a second part to the verse, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we've looked at how there's a difference, there's a turning point, there's a but now. But I want to look at the second half of the verse, which t- looks at the although. And that's point number two, although. Paul wants to help us see that this is not like an invention. This is not brand new. It's a but now, but it's actually always been the case. And he wants the Jewish people in Rome and and all of us now to see that actually this righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the great doctrine of justification by faith alone, is the one plan of God and has always been the one plan. It's there in the law it's there in the prophets. And so we don't have time this morning. I wrote a whole like biblical theology going from Genesis all the way through to the Christmas story showing how it's always been like that. Then I had to just put it in another document because we don't have time. But, but I'm going to look at just two places in, in Romans where Paul shows us that justification by faith, that righteousness is through faith in God has always been the plan. So if you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 3. So flick over, you'll see. Once he kind of explains the gospel, he then goes back and shows how this has always been the plan. Look at Romans 4, 3, and he turns to the story of Abraham, and then he's going to turn to the story of David. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis 15 after God came to Abraham and promised him, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will give you land and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And what did Abraham have to do? Nothing. He believed God. And Genesis 15, 6 says it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified in God's sight through faith in God's promise always been the case that was as Paul will go on in Romans 4 to say it was before circumcision it was before the law of Moses it's always been by faith alone then go now to chapter 4 verse 6 and he brings up the story of David to show that this so that's the law Genesis is the law part of the Old Testament and the prophets is basically everything else in after, you know, Deuteronomy, every other book in the Old Testament. So now he turns to a prophet and he's looking at David here, one of the kings, and he goes to the example of David to show that justification by faith has always been the story. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 51, you know, the great penitential confession Psalm of David after he killed Uriah, slept with Bathsheba. He pens this Psalm of plea for mercy and says these verses. Oh, sorry, Psalm, it's actually Psalm 32. My apologies, but it was actually a similar Psalm time. Blessed are those, so counted happy, righteous, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Very clearly, that verse is saying that you will be blessed apart from your works. Your works is your sin. Your sin deserves death and condemnation and you should have been killed for it. And now he's saying there's a blessing for someone who can be counted righteous apart from their works. How? Only through faith in God. And so Paul wants us to see that this has always been the case. For any human before Christ or any human after Christ, everyone is only ever saved by faith in God. For Abraham and David, they didn't know who Christ was, but they believed that somehow God was able to count someone righteous, even though they were not righteous themselves. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now what's been planned comes together. What was in shadow has become reality. The way that God overlooked David's sin was not because he just turned a blind eye like Allah does in Islam, but because he punished Jesus on the cross for David's sin. The way God can overlook Abraham's pagan idolatry for all of his life until God appeared to him is not because he turns a blind eye and gives him a new chapter and a new leaf. It's because he punished Abraham's sin in Jesus Christ thousands of years later. And therefore God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. From Genesis, we have waited for a new Adam who would protect his people from sin, a serpent crusher. We've waited for a king in the line of David who will reign forever and ever. We've waited for a prophet like Moses who will obey the law perfectly. We waited for a priest like Aaron who will actually mediate for God's people and finally take away all their sins. And Galatians 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Amen? But now, although... It's not a new plan it all comes together in Christ I think when we see the picture all together it ought to slowly come down from our mind into our heart and into our soul so that we will say with Martin Lloyd Jones there are no more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than just these two words but now the law makes us hungry. Christ is the banquet feast. The law makes us thirsty. Christ is the pure stream to slake our parched thirst. The law condemns us as guilty and makes us terrified. But Christ sits in our seat in the courtroom room and bears the judgment so that we walk free. Friend, if you are weighed down by sin, If you're convicted of your own error, if you know how far you fall short, if you don't pray enough, love enough, worship enough, be glad, be generous, speak kindly enough, be patient, look to Christ, your righteousness, and know you are forgiven if you have all your faith in him and nothing will be held against you. You'll be saved this day. And if you already are a Christian and you wanna grow as a Christian and change your life, by all means, use the law to let you know where you ought to go, but don't rely on the law to give you the power to get there. No, you too, look upon Christ, feed upon Christ, fill your soul with Christ and the gospel and the assurances and the promises and the comforts and the blessing so that your heart is full of happiness, so that your weary soul is melted, so that now you wanna drive in the direction that the Lord tells you to go and you want to do it for His glory, not because of your fear. The gospel saves us and the gospel changes us. And it's all by looking to Christ. And so church, I call you, look upon Him and Him alone. If you look anywhere else, if you rest anywhere else, if you trust in any other system of salvation, no matter how moral it is, no how virtuous it may be, no matter what it promises, you will stand condemned by the law. There is only one way. It's Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Let us join together in prayer. Lord, I pray and ask that you would... Fill our hearts with constant knowledge and visions of your son, Jesus, and the promises of the gospel. Lord, when we feel down, may we remind ourselves that he was struck down so that we would be forgiven. When we feel guilty, would we be reminded that he was forsaken so that we will not be condemned. When we feel tired and weary, would we know that He was expired upon that cross so that we would run and not grow weary forever and ever in heaven? Would we be aware that when we feel pathetic and we feel stained, that you love us through Christ and you don't look upon our sins as we do, but instead you see the loveliness of Christ and you delight in us? When we come to you in repentance, you will open arms and embrace us like the prodigal father. Lord, I pray and ask that if there's any here today that are under conviction of sin and haven't yet fled to Christ for the first time, draw them to yourself, O Lord. Have mercy upon them that today would be their day, their but now, their moment. Would they put faith in you and accounted righteous in your sight? Oh, what a miracle that would be, oh Lord. Would you call them even now? Would they give up the act? Would they stop running from your law which condemns them so they desensitize themselves to it and just forget about it? But if you put them under conviction, oh Lord, would now, would you act? And for any of us who are Christians, but living under the law, living under condemnation, living under the old code, living under the mountain of thunder and fire and trembling and lightning, may we walk to that hill and may we sit under that cross and may the sparks of the cross fall upon our heart again enliven us, melt us. Vivify us, strengthen us, and equip us to live for you and your glory this week. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.